So we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are upon, excuse me, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord. As holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17 to close. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's pray again. Father, uh, the task before us uh, has been heavy on my heart this week. Um, God, I I, want to honor You. We want to seek Your face in the midst of our time together as we look to Your Word. May the Christ of Scripture, the Christ who has gone Before us, the Christ who went into the grave rose from the dead. May Jesus Christ Himself be honored and glorified. God, I know there's nothing that I can say to amount to anything that would bring comfort to the hurting as like Your Word and Spirit can. So God, I ask, please, you get out of the way. Speak from the heart. May You get honor and glory in all that is said and done. As the kids leave too, we pray that You would bless them the teachers and those who will teach them about Jesus. And we pray that we would bring all honor and glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the kids are dismissed. We're in 1 Peter 3. We like to do expository preaching going through books of the Bible. So we are in 1 Peter. We'll continue through that till a little bit after Easter, which is three weeks away, four weeks away. Remember, we're having a Good Friday service here uh, the 29th, the 29th. Uh, there's going to be, uh, that's Friday night, of course. And then Thursday, the 28th, is going to be a service at Mountain View Evangelical Church called Mode Thursday. If some of you with the Reform background and different traditions know about that Thursday. So there will be more information coming up. But we'll be going through First Peter, finishing up, going into Second Peter uh, in sometime in April and May. And then June, July, and August, we'll take a break from expository, which we like to do in the summer, kind of lighten things up. We're going to be doing a series called Because You Asked. And what that means is we're going to um, ask the congregation to go online to our website. There's going to be a form for you to fill out or a questionnaire to fill out. And if you have any questions about Scripture, anything in the Word that you're not sure of, anything that you'd like to see taught and preached, you will fill out, send the question to us, and we'll formulate a, a, a you know, a, a eight-week series because you asked. Uh, Paul the Apostle, uh, many times in the book of Romans, he would he would... Think ahead of what he's preaching and, and know what the questions were going to be. And he would answer questions uh, knowing that people would have questions when he got finished teaching the Word of God. 
1 Corinthians, he actually had a bunch of questions asked of him. Pastor Paul, can you answer these questions? How do we do this? How do we do that? And he answered questions. So we're going to do that this summer and kind of answer any questions that you might have about the Word of God. So we're in 1 Peter 3, though, today. And Peter's writing this letter, as many of you know, to a well, to multiple churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They're under the Roman authority at this time, and the emperor is Nero. Pockets of persecution have broken out in the church, and within a short couple of years of this letter that was written to these churches, Nero uh, would burn down Rome, blame the Christians, and then go after them. Actually burning them alive, uh, impaling them and burning them, wrapping dead skins and animal skins around their bodies, and throwing them in lion's dens, all kinds of fun ways to kill people. Uh, he was just a wicked man, and Peter is writing this letter to encourage believers to stand firm in the faith during suffering and during persecutions, and, and, and he wants them to, in a godly way, in, in a pastoral way, encourage them. And he, and he lets us know that even while we suffer and we are in persecution, they're in persecution, that this place is not our final destiny, and it's very important as we look today, that we are foreigners and sojourners and exiles here on this earth because we're awaiting King Jesus to come for, in His kingdom to establish a perfect, sinless you know, glorious, without disease, without sin, without persecution, this kingdom that He will come because He is King Jesus. And He promised that to us. Peter tells us that our salvation is not only uh, eternal, but it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept by the omnipotent power of God. That that's our inheritance. That's our salvation. And over the past several weeks, we've been looking at responses to that very truth that Peter talked about in chapter 1, verses 1 through, say, 9. The truth of God's salvation. Paul, Peter said, now this is your responsibility. This is what you're called to do because of the provision that God has made in such a great salvation. You see, God's salvation is free. God's work was given to us, but it's a call to respond. We have responsibilities. With great blessing comes great responsibilities. He says, number one, we're to live holy and separate lives. Chapter 1, verse 15. We're to love each other from the heart. Chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2. Three, we're supposed to live in this world as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, engaging culture for the cause of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9. Third, we have the responsibilities to live submissively. We've been talking about submission lately. First, we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. Chapter 2, verse 13. Then to our employers. Chapter 2, verse 18. And then we looked last week at the reciprocal responsibilities in a home for husbands and wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands in their leadership. They are not to, uh, even if they're unbelievers, they're not to adorn themselves simply without a beauty, but they are to look in the heart and be gentle and submissive. And that's what's precious in the sight of God. And men, reciprocal responsibilities, we're to honor our wives. We're to place this value upon her and love her and cherish her because, he says, as we finished last week, we are co-heirs with the grace of God together. So there's our responsibility toward each other. There's our responsibility to submit to the governing authorities, wives, uh, our bosses. And now Paul takes it one step further in our text this morning, our responsibility to live as God's people in unity in the midst of suffering. Peter does something very interesting here in this text. He moves the conversation ever so slowly. You can miss it if you don't see it. From submission, governments and 
husbands and wives, I mean, and, and uh, your job, to suffering, submission to suffering. And that has been a major theme throughout this letter. Kind of, I shouldn't say a major theme. It was, a, it was an underlying theme throughout this letter about suffering. It talks about suffering of Christ, and he's been talking about suffering, but it's kind of been a hit and miss. But today, Peter's going to land right on it and talk about suffering. And we're going to see how he goes from submission to suffering. Okay? Let me just say a couple things about suffering really quick as I... Um, as we deal with this text. Number one, if submission is difficult, we talked about that, I saw the smiles on your face, submission is hard at times because we're rebellious people, we have that Adam-like nature, and we don't like to submit. If that's difficult, suffering is not an easy task to talk about. So it's been difficult this week, I've got to be honest. This is a harder text for me to preach this morning than last week. Because suffering really hits home. Many of you have suffered greatly. Many of you are hurting now. Many of you know what it means to suffer. And it's not easy. So I want to be gentle. I want to be straightforward. And I hope that the, pray that the Holy Spirit will really work in your heart. The other thing I want to talk about quickly is suffering. When we say suffering, there are many different ways people suffer. Right? There's general suffering. When I talk about general suffering, what I mean by general suffering is we live in a fallen, broken world. Just common suffering for everyone. Everyone suffers to some degree because we live in a fallen, broken world. We get things like cancer, diseases, our hips, my hip, full of arthritis, right? Chronic pain. Moms have miscarriages, have birth defects. You have things like earthquakes and tsunamis. We are living in a fallen, broken world and there is suffering that is common for everyone. Then there's deserved suffering. We suffer consequences for our folly and our stupidity. We do dumb things and we suffer because of the consequences of things that we do. We drink, we ruin our liver. We, 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 uh, we speed, we get a ticket. You speed three or four times, you get four tickets, you lose your license, okay? You know, that's what happens. You gamble, you're broke. I mean, that, that's what happens. You, you, and then you can't be like, oh, I, I, I can't believe I took my license. Like, really? You can't speed like five times in a week. They're going to take your license. Like, that's not, you know, that's, that's deserved suffering. Then there's discipline suffering, where God allows things in our life. God chastises those He loves. As a good daddy, He chastises children. And we have discipline suffering. And we're suffering because of things we have done or things that God allowed to teach us a lesson out of love. Then there's victim suffering. Someone has hurt you. Someone caused you great pain. Somebody has sinned deeply against you. And you suffer. You suffer. You're the victim, and you suffer. Then there's empathy suffering. Weep with those who meet, weep, mourn with those who mourn. You see someone you love deeply suffering, and you enter into, and you, and you care about that person, and because they suffer, you hurt. It's empathy suffering. But then there's what is called vicarious suffering. Because we are directly being persecuted for the name of Jesus, for the stance on the gospel, for the word of God, and that we're being persecuted simply because of who we are in Christ and what we stand for. And that is primarily what Peter is talking about 
in this letter. And some of you may not know that kind of suffering. And I want to bring everybody onto the page, on the same page. That's what Peter's really talking about. I think there's some principles we can learn, but Peter's talking about suffering for the cause and the name of, of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So I, I, let me ask this question as we begin to look at this letter together, the rest of this letter, this text together. Could it be, and only you can answer this, could it be, that we are not suffering for the cause of Christ and anything but vicarious suffering because we have really shrunk back from our responsibilities to confront people with the gospel. To tell people about Jesus. Maybe you work in a place or go to school or wherever you are around your friends and stuff, they don't even know you're a Christian. So of course we're not suffering for Jesus' sake because no one even knows I love Jesus. I think sometimes... We say we're suffering, but people, we're really, we're just dormant, we're quiet. We don't speak up. We don't speak up. Now, does it mean that there aren't real people in this room right now suffering for the name of Jesus? Maybe there's a boss, and you're a great worker, he knows that, you have responsibilities, you do your responsibilities, you're, you're, you're doing everything you're, you need to do, but your boss hates Christians and will not give you that promotion. Maybe you're in school. And, and, and you're, you know, your certain friends or, or you're in college or certain professors or whatever, they're all over you because of the name of Jesus. Maybe you're in a team. Classmates won't invite you to parties because you're a Christian. Your neighbors won't talk to you or want nothing to do with you because you're a Christian. That, this is different than being persecuted because I, I'm this self-righteous jerk and I don't really want to talk to anybody and they, they don't like me. There's a big difference between the two. Let's be honest. So, we have to ask that question. Can I genuinely say that I've been humble, loving people, showing grace, standing on the truth of my faith, and simply because I love Jesus, I'm being hated, disrespected, alienated, and facing persecution? That's the question we have to ask. And if we're not, can we say, can we say that I, I am stepping out in faith, I am talking to people about Jesus. They know I'm a Christian. I don't know. I mean, that's something to think about, something to talk about in your community groups. Where exactly does the persecution come? When is it right persecution for the name of Jesus? We'll talk about it. Maybe you need to take a step of faith. Bring your Bible to work. Whatever. Okay. Our text this morning will give us three principles. Let's get to that. Concerning suffering. Okay. Three things we're going to see. Concerning suffering for the for the good. Okay? First, our community. Peter talks about our community. Second is our credibility. He's talking about what we speak. And then finally, he will talk about connectivity and how we are connected to Christ. Okay? So, if you've got your Bibles open, community. Peter turns his attention as he's talking about persecution. Excuse me. As he's talking about submission, he's turning his attention now to the suffering. But he kind of, in between, he does that. He wants to talk about community. And I think it's not done by accident. Because community is so needed in a time of suffering, hurting. Verse 8, finally, he says, okay, while you're living in this dual citizenship, while we're talking about submission, we're talking about loving Jesus in a broken world, all of you, that's the church, everybody in the church, not just husbands and wives, not just employers and employees, not just those who submit to government, everybody in the church have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humbled mind. 
Peter begins with an encouragement to submit as he moves to suffering. And, 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 and someone once said, and I think I mentioned this before, either you're suffering now in a trial, or you've been coming out of suffering in a trial, or you're getting ready to go into one. Right? We've all suffered before. And here Peter gives us five uh, adjectives, or kind of imperatives, but adjectives, about how we ought to respond as a community. And what's interesting here is the first and the last adjective, look what it says, it has to do with unity of mind, a humble mind. Let me put that on for you so you guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, a humble mind and, and unity of mind. And that's because harmony and humility go hand in hand. So the first and last, they, they go hand in hand. You've got to be humble, right? Because... If you want to have harmony, what will destroy harmony is pride and selfishness. So there needs to be humility. So harmony and humility go together, the first and the last. The second and the fourth adjective has to do with emotions. He says, sympathetic, be sympathetic and have a tender heart. One, four, one, five, two, four, and smack right in the middle. If you look at our text, what does it say? Love. Philadelphos, brotherly love. That's what he says. And it's important to see that the center of the life we have together is love. How important is love in a family when times are really hard? Even when we suffer for things we've done in stupidity and we need brothers and sisters to come alongside and confront us, as the Bible says, we are commanded to love and speak the truth in love. But brothers and sisters, I need you. You need us. We need each other to love one another, particularly when we are in the process or in the midst of suffering. So what does he say? How does that live itself out? Number one, unity of mind. doesn't mean conformity, throwaway truth. doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians. Unity is a byproduct of following Jesus. So when he says be of, you know, a, 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 have unity in mind, he's talking about gathering around the truths of Christ. So we don't look to create unity, we join cre- uh, unity because we are all following Jesus. Okay? It's not a cause, and we don't join around a cause, and we don't make unity, we join unity, and when we're all gathered around Jesus, we can have unity. It's a byproduct of following Him. And when Christ is at the center, you can have unity because it's around Jesus. Okay? So we as a church have unity in mind because we want to serve the Lord, love the Lord, glorify the Lord, love others. Things that Jesus wants to do, that Jesus does when He was in ministry on this earth, we join Him and then we can have unity. We don't create it, we join it. Okay? Peter tells us we're living stones. Chapter 2, verse 5, being built together. Why? To offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Verse 9, that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light. You join that, we'll have unity. That's what he's saying. Next he says, be sympathetic. comes from the Greek word, sympathos, which means to enter into another person's feelings. Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. How awesome is it when someone comes alongside you when you're hurting? When you're really, really in pain, heavy, heavy heart, broken heart, just living in numbness and and, and just darkness in your life and somebody comes along and just wants to enter that pain with you. 
just wants to sit with you, just wants to hold your hand, wants to cry with you, just to feel what you feel, to try to enter into your experience. That's sympathetic. Next, of course, on this teeter-totter is brotherly love. When the Bible talks about Philadelphia, he's talking about brotherly love. He's talking about love of a family. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, my family, i got that crazy uncle. He's always drunk. He's got his underwear down by his pants. My, you know, my aunt, Miss Gossip, knows everything. And we're not talking about those crazy people that stand out on the porch with a shotgun, okay? We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who genuinely love and care for one another. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Love that comes from God because God is love. And what Peter is saying is, if you have been born again, which he talks about that in his letter, if you've been born of him, if, if his DNA is in you, if, if you've been born of his spirit, then he's dwelling within you, and the love that you should have for one another is his life living in you, coming out and loving people. Love is patient. God is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. Right? 1 Corinthians 13. It don't keep records of wrong. God doesn't keep records of wrong. It does not have joy in things that are evil, but rejoices with truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres, it never fails. That's how we ought to love one another. Next he says tenderhearted. The word is compassionate. Back in the day when this was written, it meant like the inner bowels or the intestines of someone. I'm saying that's gross. It is. But that's, he's talking about that, that deep heart-wrenching love and compassion and, and sense of joining in with you in your hurt. But this word, rather than the other word that we looked at, um, kind-hearted, tender-hearted, or the, or the first word was, it's kind of, kind of the same thing. If you have your Bibles, you can see when it says sympathy and then tender-heart, they're kind of the same. But the thing about tender-heartedness is it moves you to action. So it's not just sitting holding your hand. It's driving you where you need to go. It's coming to your house and preparing a meal. It's, it's sitting with you or cleaning your home or whatever it is. It, it's, it's action. It's sympathy. It's care. It's entering into your relationship, excuse me, into your pain, but it's also serving you. So th- that it needs to be done that way. It needs to, it needs to be motivated to working and to, to serving and to loving each other. Lastly, he says, be humble-minded. To be humble means to have an honest estimate of oneself before God. Humility does not negate one's worth or abilities or dignity, nor does it inflate them. Humility is hard to grasp of. As soon as you think, I'm really humble, then pride steps in, you know. It's like the one who won a, somebody at a, at a job gave someone a pin that said, you know, the most humble employee, and when he wore it the next day, they ripped it off from his shirt. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's hard to hold on to, but humility is closely related, related to submission. It's courteousness. It's, it's, it's re- treating others with respect. It's, it's bringing their needs above your needs. C.S. Lewis said it great when he said, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Peter gives these words to the community. He says, listen, y'all. Love each other. Love each other. Love each other. Have unity together. Join together and follow Jesus. Be sympathetic Feel each other's pain. Love each other. Don't keep records of wrong. Be tender-hearted. Serve one another. And be humble. Be humble. Love your brothers. Raise up their needs. Serve your friends. Serve your brothers and sisters. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, look what he says. He's slowly... You've got to catch this. Now he's moving from submission to, to suffering. Do not repay evil for evil. 
verse 9. Or reviling for reviling, right? Slander, abuse. But on the contrary, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain or inherit, depending on your translation, of blessings. So what Peter's saying, look, you got three things you can do. You got three things you can do. You can approach evil and suffering and, and, and things that are people doing to you. You can return evil for evil. You could be like the devil. That's what the devil does. You can return evil for evil. Or you can return good for good and evil for evil. That's human nature. Do to them before they do to you. Treat them the same exact way. They treat me that way, I treat them that way. If they're good to me, I'll be good to them. If they're evil, I'll be evil to them. That's human nature. Or he says, I will treat you by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit and return good for evil. Like Jesus. Peter already said back in chapter 2, this is why you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. How that? How do we do that? Verse 22, He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. In return, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Because our God has blessed us in Christ, our, our present relationship should be characterized by blessing others. You have been blessed. We need to bless others. And this is not new. If you remember, when we were studying Genesis, Abraham, God called Abraham out of a, a foreign land, uh, uh, called him out of his actually homeland to go to a foreign land, and we told him, I will make you a nation, I will bless you, and your name will be great, and you will be a blessing to others. That's what he's calling us to. Now, I, this is not teaching us, this is not saying, Peter is not saying that in order to inherit salvation, in order to gain salvation, you have to do certain things towards certain people. That's not what he's saying. He already said our inheritance is, is kept by the power of God, that we're, it's undefiled and, and, and perishable. But what he's reminding us, folks, if you're a brother and sister in Christ, what he's reminding us is that the evidence of being born of God is a, is a vital hope, a vigorous hope in the future blessings, and it will show itself in the way in which we live. So what Peter is saying is if the gospel... If the good news of Jesus is always in the forefront of our minds, if we give God our whole heart and we cherish the future that God has promised us above all things, then your life, the way you live, the way you bless others is a foretaste of that future blessing that you will inherit. That will show people that you trusted Christ. And then when you not return evil for evil because... The greatest hope of your life is God and the gospel. And it was on the cross. Listen, it was on the cross that God did not return evil for evil to you, to me. In fact, historians tell us that when people were crucified on a cross in that day, they would actually hurl cursing and insults and screaming because that was not... I know the picture you see where it's high and lifted up, but usually the crosses were eye level. And people would scream and curse in pain, urinate on people, defecate on people while they're screaming in pain, being crucified. Jesus looks down and sees those who crucified Him. What does He say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Logic is simple for Peter. We've been called to inherit a blessing. 
promised to us. If we, leave, if we are to live consistently with our calling, then we should be characterized by the fact that we bless others. And you think, where do they get this crazy idea from? Again, Jesus, I tell you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, do to others as you would have them do to you. Christian community, says Peter, is a community that blesses. So people, brothers, sisters, do people see you as a blessing, as a nuisance, as a hardhead, or with a smile because you're going to bless them? You know, that's a tough question. Peter says, be a blessing to others. Be a be- look at the credibility. Look at- Peter, look- Peter quotes in chapter 3, uh, 10, 11, and 12. He's quoting Psalm 34 is what he's doing. He says, for whoever desires to love life, see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That, I mean, that, we could stay on that all day, on that passage. But I want you to understand, it's very important you understand what's going on in Psalm 34 in David's life. Because David is a foreshadow of what's happening in the life of Peter and his people that he's writing to. In Psalm 34, King David wrote this psalm while he was running for his life. In fact, he had departed Jerusalem. He was an exile and a sojourner. He left Jerusalem. And the reason is, is that King Saul, the first king of Israel, Saul, even though he was not to be king anymore, God said, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm giving it to David. Samuel had come and anointed David as the king. Even though all that was going on, Saul was trying to kill David. In fact, David had these mighty battles, uh, you know, these army, these battles, and he was killing more people, he was more victorious, and Saul was getting more and more angry by the day. Saul had become just unjust, and God was ready to remove him. During that time, twice, if you're reading 1 Samuel, twice, David could have killed Saul, snuck right up on him in a cave, snuck right on him during while he was camping out, and David could have murdered Saul. Saul was the one chasing David, but David came up to him and could have killed him, but he didn't do so. In fact, at one time, he called out to him, and, and Saul responded, Is that your voice, David? You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So you see this kind of thread that, that this psalm is pointing to. That's why Peter used it. But there are other times in David's life, and you can read this for yourself, 1 Samuel 20 through 25, 26. There are other times where David didn't do the right thing. He acted like a madman so that he could escape from the hands of Saul. He lied at one point to Abimelech and tried to, to, to escape Saul. So he's done some really good things, some really good positive things. They return evil uh, for good, and there were some things that were not all that on the up and up. David had to learn. David had to learn that God was the one that was righteous. He learned that God will deliver the righteous and judge the wicked. He learned that those who trust in God never have to fear man. Rather, we should turn from evil and do good and right by keeping, he says, our tongue from evil, our lips from deceit. And when we are in danger, we are to suffer 
when we are in danger, when we suffer unjust persecution, we have to trust that God will deliver us and not resort to lying and deceit and, 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 and twisted ways. So I think David is speaking through Peter's letter and he would tell us, I know what it's like to live in an exile world. I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to be pursued. I even know what it's like to live in fear even though God had given me uh, the promise of eternal life with Him. I know all that. And let me tell you, it's best to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) It's best to live a way that honors the God in which you serve. That's why Peter took Psalm 34 and used it. Like David, we're all living exiles and strangers. Knowing that in God's time we shall enter into the blessing that He promised. Like David, we should never live in a manner that's inconsistent with the hope that's been promised to us. But Psalm 34 is not just only about future blessing. Look at verse 10. For whoever desires to love life, see good days, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This is where this text gets kind of tricky. And, and they, they fight over it. Um, commentaries fight over that. Oh, he's only talking about eternal blessing. He's only talking about present blessings. I, I think he's talking about both. Whoever desires to love life, see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He's talking about now. To, to, to love life, to see good days, is not, does not mean there's no suffering. He's writing to people who are suffering. I think what he's saying is to love life and see good days is to have your heart in full contentment in God. Being satisfied in Him in the midst of suffering and pain. And when we do that, we must, what? If we're content in God, we're going to keep our lips and our tongue quiet. We're not going to lie. We're not going to revile. We're not going to speak that way. They'll be quiet. And there's ever a time, if you've suffered at all, if there's ever a time to curse, if there's ever a time to revile, if there's ever a time to give back evil for good, it's when you're hurting. What do they say? Hurting people hurt people. And he said, not here. Watch your tongue. Be content, satisfied in God. James 5.3 says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Peter knew opening his mouth get him in trouble. He got in trouble a couple of times opening his mouth. I know you could all say amen, right? All right. Then Peter writes, verse 11, Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. There's a positive and negative. I need to shun. I need to walk away from that which is evil. I need to be careful that my tongue is not setting a fire. And I need to turn and I need to do good. That's an act of the will. He says then you need to seek and pursue peace. It was Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. If we go out seeking trouble, guess what we're going to find? Trouble. We're going to find trouble. Romans 12 says, It's possible as much as depends on you. You can't make people be at peace with you, but live peacefully with all men. Sometimes it's not possible. He says, Why do the Lord's eyes are on the righteous? His ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What greater blessing could there be in the midst of your suffering and pain to have contentment and satisfaction in God knowing that His eyes see your pain. That His ears are open to your prayers. That the very presence of God is in your life. His love encompasses you. 
it is easier. I, I know I'm going to get an amen on this one. It is easier to feel, to sense, to know the love of God when things are going great. Oh, the love of God, first child. Oh, the love of God on my wedding day. Oh, the love of God and the first grandchild. That great job, sensing the love of God, that's easy. It's harder to know the love of God when the miscarriage comes, when the job loss comes, when the spouse books and takes off. By faith, family, by faith, believe that God's love does not change, that God's care for you does not change, that responding in a way that is pleasing to Him His eyes see and His ears hear your pain, your suffering. God's love doesn't change. Doesn't change when you're abandoned, when you're rejected. The command to return blessing and good for insult and evil and to seek and pursue peace is at the heart of people who refuse to allow their suffering, listen, to define them. That's who I am. That's who my identity is. No, 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 no. We belong to the King of Kings. He hears my prayer. He sees my pain. The blessings that we receive, when he talks about blessing, is not material, oh, God's going to get me through this and give me three cars. Okay? That's not, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. He's talking about where one experiences God's presence in the midst of suffering, God's love in the midst of suffering, and the assurance that our suffering is purposeful, that God's in control of the universe. It's easy when times are good. It takes a step of faith to step out and say, nothing's changed. Yes, I'm suffering, but God loves me and I belong to Him. And it's purposeful. It's that day, which Psalm 34 says, we will magnify the Lord, Psalm 34, 1. That we will experience answer to prayer, Psalm 34, 4. We will taste and see that the Lord is good in the midst of that. Psalm 34, 8. Because we will sense the nearness of God. Psalm 34, 18. It is those who do good in their behavior and seek God in their hearts, heart which will experience His grace now and be completely vindicated in the end. Be completely vindicated in the end. Family, listen. We, we're, we suffer. We do good. We suffer. And by our actions, we show ourselves. We watch our tongue. We have the presence of God in our lives. We watch what we say. We, we, we bless. We don't, we, don't, we don't hurt. We don't, we don't return evil for evil. We trust in God. We rely on God. We rest in God's provisions and grace. And then our lives and our lips will what? Demonstrate. And our credibility to the world will mean something because we're connected to Jesus. And they will see that. And that's really what this passage is all about. The connectivity of seeing the suffering we go through, the way in which we respond, and people see that we're connected to the King of Kings. Verse 13, Now, what I just wrote, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Right? So doing good will not automatically be, oh, there'll be blessings and I'll never get harmed. He's saying, no, no, there... There's a way to avoid some of that. Do what's right. But there are some that will harm you anyway. But he says, have no fear, nor be troubled. Who are we to ultimately fear and have awe and respect and, and have our focus on? Jesus. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you for the reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, as I look at that text, and I've been reading that this week, I'm thinking... The, the, the centerpiece of that text, or the, the, the thing that we have to draw out from all the other texts, is answer the question in verse 15. What does it mean to honor Christ as Lord? When we could figure that out, then we could say, all right, you know, what does that look like? How, how, does, how does that live out in my life? That's the first question. What does it mean to honor Christ as Lord? Then we could see how it manifests itself. What it means is that we... In our lives, in our will, in our choices, place Christ above all things. He's Lord. He's not genie. He's not my little, you know, Santa Claus in heaven. He's Lord of the universe. John Piper wrote beautifully what that means. He says, Jesus is at the highest place, the greatest value, the most supreme treasure, the greatest admiration, the most cherished prize, the one you esteem and honor and love the most out of all persons and all the things in the world, especially standing in awe of his lordship over the universe, bowing before his sovereign rule, tremble with joy and gladness at his majesty. Let that sink in. If that's the case, if that's the way we're living our lives, we've set apart Jesus is Lord, majesty, glory, splendor, value, worship, Infinite value. What will that look like? He tells us. Verse 14. You'll be zealous and you'll be fearless. You not only do good as you suffer at the hands of those who persecute you, you'll be eager. That's what zealous means. You'll be eager in your efforts and fearless in your hearts. Because when there is worship, when Christ is supreme, when the infinite value of your life is Christ, by doing that, you'll be immune to the fear of man. And Christ, His glory, and His protection will be our shield. Jesus said these words, Do not fear. That's a command. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about the Father, the Son, the Spirit. He's not talking about Satan. Satan could hurt you in the outwardly, but he can't throw you in hell. Suffering can be very hard, I know. And again, I'm not patronizing it. I'm not, um, you know, talking down about the pain you go through. But it doesn't compare to eternal damnation that Jesus is talking about. Hell is forever, right? And hot is, you know, is a long, you know hot is a long time. And uh, hell is a long time. And, you know, we're talking damnation. So Jesus is saying what you need to fear is Me. Me. Okay. Now, keeping an eternal perspective is so important. Uh, we must remind ourselves that our eternal home is with Christ. Our eternal desire is to please Him. And most importantly, if we're honest, we understand the gospel. We need to be zealous because Christ was zealous in love toward us. Think about this, folks, for a minute. It was Christ on the cross who was zealous in His love for us, who did not return evil for evil. He didn't give us our just justice, but... Love and forgiveness. And the only way we can bless, not curse, is to be zealous about 
by constantly remembering the gospel. With our lips, we curse God. With our lips, we cursed God. We rebelled against God. In our hearts, we did not set apart or honor Jesus as Lord. All of us, the Bible says, have, have fallen away, have gone and done our own thing. We honored money and sex and drugs and influence and jobs and, and, and being popular. Oh, that was our Lord. And what did God do? God intervened in our lives. God stepped in. And because of our evil, He did us good. That's the gospel. I heard a preacher this week, he said in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he said, um, it, it says this, it says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the preacher said, you know, if you remove the word Christ, if you put anything else in that place, it's not true anymore. To live is money, to die is loss. Really, you're not taking it with you. To live is my looks, to die, loss. To live is power, a portfolio, to die is loss. The only way to put that sentence right is to say to live is Christ. Then to die is gain. Everything else is false. Everything else isn't true. So when Christ is Lord of our hearts, He is holy, He is separate, He is preeminent and prominent in our lives, we will be zealous to do good works, and we will not fear man. Number two, if we honor Christ as Lord, look what it says in verse 15, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense. Apologetic, it means uh, apologetic, we get that word apologetics from. He says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The word you there is plural. It means the family. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here's the implication. You're living your life in such a way, and when you suffer for persecution, when you're hurting and in your pain, you're inviting people, unbelievers, into your life so they see your suffering, and they're going to ask you a question. They're going to wonder why you do what you do and you say what you do. That's what it says. That's what he means. So when they see us grieving, when they see us, you know, grieving over our losses, even angry about our injustices, our attitude should be differently because we have hope. Family, there's never a greater time in our lives to reflect the glory of God, the goodness of God, the majesty of Christ during suffering during hardship, during pain. And when we cling to Christ in the midst of suffering and pain, we declare to the world His beauty, His glory, His preeminence and infinite value, that He is, above all things, worthy to be praised. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, looking to show the world, through the circumstances, Christ. Through our circumstances. And when we do that, look what He says. He says in our text, let me turn my page, I have it right on there. He says that you will have an opportunity to give the hope and the reason for your, for your hope. You know what that looks like? Why are you reading your Bible? What's going on with your suffering? How's the pain? What are you go- I heard what happened. You're doing- God spoke to me today in Psalm 30, 27. Really? God spoke to you? Yeah. I'm in a lot of pain, and I'm not trying to say that. It doesn't hurt. But let me tell you what God spoke to my heart about. Let me, let me tell you about Jesus. 
It gives us opportunities to do that. And you know what it does? It stops us from being self-absorbed. Have you ever had a lot of pain? And I've been down this road before. And, you, and you're, all you can think about is the pain you're in. And sometimes that's just so hard to break. And what Peter is saying, listen, it, it, it's not just what you're going through. You're able to use this so that you can show others in your pain, in your hardship, in the persecution, in the suffering, how good God is. And you're inviting them into your lives. You're inviting them into lives. People want to see Christ in you. In you. And they'll see your good behavior. And they'll be put to shame. And what does he say? Do it in gentleness and respect. Sometimes people want to win a fight rather than win people to Jesus. It's it's not about how much you know. It's not knocking on the door and having the canned answer from the cult Jehovah Witness. You know what I mean? And they say the same thing over and over. Peter's context here is you're living life together in your community, believers encouraging, unbelievers seeing your suffering and your pain, pointing them to Jesus. It's given the opportunity for you to talk about the love of God in your life. And when they see that, he says here at the last part of that, of that verse, so that they see your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, your life, your conduct, your life, your conduct should reflect, he even mentions good conscience, should reflect your trust in God. It does not mean perfection. It does not mean we don't hurt. It does not mean we don't suffer. It does not mean that we don't have heavy, hard hearts, broken hearts. It means that our final hope is in Christ. I have... um, the band's going to come up, and I want to read to you. There's a man by the name of Horatio Spofford. He's a man who wrote a song called It Is Well With My Soul. Let me tell you, let me tell you a little bit about this man. He knew pain. He knew suffering. In fact, he knew pain and suffering many, many times. He had a son pass away when he was small. He had a fire take place and ruin his business. And then, not only the death of his son, not only was he financially ruined, in 1973, when he, excuse me, 1873, he planned to travel to Europe with his family. He sent his family on ahead, his wife and his four daughters, while he weighed on a business trip. And while crossing the Atlantic, the ship that his wife and daughters on, after all this pain and heartache in his life, the ship hit another ship and sunk. Killed his, all four of his daughters, drowned. His wife made it and sent, a, and sent a, a telegram, saved alone. I'm the only one left. Shortly after that, this guy, man, Spofford, traveled to meet his grieving wife on a ship. And over the spot near where his daughters had drowned, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed His own blood for my soul. My sin, O bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. 
And then in verse 4, which we're going to sing. And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. What struck me about this song is he, is he enters into his trial. He recognizes the pain. He doesn't sidestep it. He walks right through it. And he says, even though I'm trials will come, even though Satan will buffet, my sins are forgiven and my eternal destiny is with Jesus. That's what he's saying. And I looked at that and I go, that's exactly what 1 Peter 3 is saying. So I'm not sure where you are, but we're going to have a response time. The song is going to, they're going to play the song. We're going to go to the table. This table represents the body and the blood of Jesus. He's inviting you by the Spirit of God to come if you're a Christian. The bread, His body that was broken, the cup is the symbols His blood which was shed for your forgiveness of sins. And maybe there's suffering in your life that you have just turned your back on God and God is calling you back home that He will walk with you. His eyes are upon you. His ears are open to you. And you need to just let go and let Christ into your life and say, Lord, You love me. You understand pain. You were crucified on a cross and buried in a grave. You understand pain. Help me through this pain. And let me bring You honor and glory in this pain. Let me bring you honor, glory in my suffering. And let me know with deep assurance that you are present with me, your love is with me, and my eternity is with you. And in my pain, let me bring glory and honor to those around. Because folks, what's most important is heaven or hell, is eternal life, either eternity in heaven with Jesus or eternity in hell separated from God. And I will implore you if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not confessed your sins, if you have not turned from your sin and trust Christ, today is the day of salvation. Yield your life to Jesus. Trust Him that He died on the cross for your sin. He paid the ransom and died. Shed His blood so that you can have forgiveness of sin. It's a matter of turning from your sin and turning to Jesus. And if you're a Christ follower, come to the table. If during prayer you give your life to Christ and you yield yourself to Jesus, come to the table. And wherever God is speaking to your heart through your suffering and pain, let's respond in a way that is appropriate for His glory and your joy. Father, thank You for the time that we could spend together. And, and it is, it is, a, it is a, a hard understanding, but we know that Your Spirit can do great work and can show us and reveal to us Christ in the midst of pain and suffering. Father, maybe there's some here that have never experienced it before, but they don't know what's around the corner. And maybe there's someone here that, that understands pain and suffering deep right now in their hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would draw them closer to Jesus, that we as a family would love them and care for them and, and work with them. And Lord, we pray that all of the pain and suffering that we may go through, we pray, Lord, that others would see you in us that our response will be to bless. Our response will be not to revile. Our response will be to withhold our tongue and to give you glory and praise with the tongue in which you gave us. So, Father, as we go to communion today, we ask that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified. And it's in his name. Amen.